si gente. Welcome everyone. You're listening to Daniel here in the D Report. Today we'll get a chance to speak with Venisha Henani and Nicholas Rajan. Our subject will be the rise and development of the semiconductor. We'll focus on the Fairchild Corporation Semiconductor Manufacturing Plant in New Mexico on a Navajo reservation, circa 1965 to 1975. We will focus on the relationship between the design of the semiconductor and the Diné and Hopi people that carry a long history of rug weaving art that expresses geometric patterns that match those of the semiconductor. But before we begin the conversation, Vanisha and Nicholas, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I'm Vanisha Hanani. I'm Hopi from Walpi, Arizona. I currently live out here in uh, Grand Terrace, California, which is between uh, Riverside and Colton. Um, I've been out here since the 2000s, I want to say. Um, I, I was in the Navy, and so I ended up out here and just never went back. <laughs> uh, you know, I work for several companies in the engineering field, um, like Raytheon and things like that. Um, but right now I work for, um, on a lighter side, I work for Peacock or Sky Showtime for NBC Universal. And I'm a QA tester by trade, uh, QA engineer by trade. Um, and this subject here, uh, the Fairchild Plant Project or story. Um, I've always been interested in like just the the off the beaten path, you know, um, off the beaten path stories that kind of reiterate how natives and indigenous were naturally already engineers. And I, Nick and I have had long conversations about that, how, you know, there's just so many samples in our history um, of just the traces of being engineers. And one of my favorite, one of my focuses now where I'm at is to mentor uh, other people that are interested in the engineering field. And I think this has been one of the greatest waypoints, uh, waypoint stories of letting people know, look like, <laughs> you know, cause a lot of times I think at one point I thought that I didn't have uh, engineering, you know, like the engineering example and nobody was an engineer or, you know, like oftentimes you have the, the people you look up to or whatever. And uh, it turns out like, and uncovering these stories and other stories in particular um, just really is something that I think would do a great service, not only to Navajo and Hopi. And uh, when Nick came approached me about it, it I was just like, this is amazing. <laughs> and, you know, so it, it's just an amazing story. And uh, it just, I talk about it to other people and they're just like, whoa. And, you know, um, you know, as we go on, it just, it's, it's an amazing story. So I'm really excited to be here and uh, finally get to talking about it with Nick. <laughs> Nick, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? It's great being on here again, because I was looking back at those old radio shows that we did, Daniel, uh, for Healing the Earth. And me and Venetia, we actually got connected through Healing the Earth as well back in 2019. And um, Natalie got us in touch. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm a member of the Navajo Nation, enrolled member. My dad, he's from India. So I have that going on for Bashashin, born uh, poor, but uh, my background really comes for, through physics and material science and engineering, but um, I've always been about just like the universe, cosmos, how things work from general relativity, 
special relativity at that grand scale all the way down to like quantum uh, quantum mechanics and quantum computation and uh, Richard Feynman's like one of those really big inspirations too you know just like there's all this room at the bottom and uh, it wasn't until I started working with California Indian Nations College where I learned about this history uh, there's really good work that's gone on in the past like uh, a few articles called like indigenous circuits and one that came out recently in the last year or so called like hidden figures for native people but um, it was never a story that I had heard before about the Fairchild semiconductor plant being on uh, Navajo Hopi, like out there in Shiprock. Uh, I went through, got my master's degree, everything, like got my physics degree and never heard, heard about it. And then uh, in those articles, it's just like the, the way that it um, plays out that like the circuits kind of mimic the artistry that we have in our cultures it was like okay that's that's pretty interesting but then you learn that Fairchild semiconductor was the first semiconductor plant uh, plant in the world and that it took time for those integrated circuit designs to come about it wasn't like uh, those physicists engineers like Moore and all these other people from um, Caltech and from Fairchild it's not like they were like oh these are the designs that we have we're going to start building it now it took time from when they opened up the plant in Shiprock to like five years later to where they actually had the design for the integrated circuits. So it's just like, there's a space in there where it's like what actually happened and what's going on. And the work that these other people had done, they're not coming from this like physics standpoint. They're not coming from the engineering and programming standpoint like what me and Venetia have. So I think that we just want to get into that, that kind of like manifold and those folds of it a little bit more and bring the story out uh, at an even greater degree because uh, yeah, it's it's quite amazing and incredible. We could just go on and on, but <laughs> yeah, uh, there's there's just so many different points that we'll have to get into and uh, bring up in future discussions as well. I was thinking about the aspect of storytelling and my background is in education and um, the way that I, I was thinking about responding right now is the way that we have different narratives about our communities. And uh, Venetia, I believe you mentioned something about like seeing role models or the idea of engineering as, as being something that we have in our communities. Um, and they come in different formats, but there's a, there's a, um, a story that is told uh, within the field of education that black and brown and indigenous communities um, do not have an experience, a background, in certain fields, and that is why they are excluded from those fields. I have been in the past, uh, probably at least 15 years, been pushing back against that story, even when it's true. What I mean, I'll say that it was true. It says that, like, even if I come from a household that was not a college graduate household of parents, even if I come from a household where my parents were not engineers, that could be true as why I had a a different story of, of what I could perceive myself as a potential future uh, career. But I'm, when I say that it's not, that the narrative is, is a little bit uncomfortable for me is that it doesn't give us credit. Let's say my parents did not go to college. It does not mean that they were not key figures in me becoming a college professor. Uh, I often tell a story that my teaching style comes from my home my kitchen table, my parents, my grandparents, amazing scholars. None of them would be 
thought of as scholars because they haven't written a book, but the level of information that they have, the archival knowledge that they have rivals most of the teachers that I've ever had in, in universities. And that's not because they're unique. I think they are very normal. Most of our, most of our parents are that powerful. And I'm thinking about the idea of storytelling. And that's how I want to start this conversation about flipping the script a little bit. And here we are, hopefully, um, in this space where I have, I feel very lucky to be able to share a discussion with, with two people that are, are, are versed in the sciences, in the STEMs, in, in fields that historically get kind of framed as um, white only, white male only. And even, even when we look at the, at the percentage of employment and, and, the, and that they do demonstrate that criteria, the demographic breakdown, I still want to say that uh, that doesn't speak to the comprehensive way we can speak about our communities. And here I was hoping that we could take a moment to acknowledge something that uh, both of you have been kind of speaking already. And I hope, that to, I hope that I get an opportunity to kind of access your story here, which is the idea that indigenous communities, indigenous women have a story in the semiconductor, in the computer science field. How do you start that story? Oh, I'll just say that like with STEM, uh, there's so much focus on STEM that they kind of exclude all these different uh, aspects of study. I, I like to say that I'm like doing empowerment programs in STEM plus math, which is uh, the map stands for medicine, art and psychology. So um, yeah, it just allows us to really open this up. And yeah, right here with the semiconductors, it's science and it's art, which open up the 21st century. I think recently, you know, one of the greatest things that happened, uh, you know, like to me to see more natives in uh, engineering, I tell I mentor a class every they have a cohort there are some a coding uh, program that's out in Arizona and it's actually founded by this Indian woman who it you know from India Indian woman uh, who founded this place who wanted to see natives in coding. And it just so happened that by by chance, I was on a, you know, I can't even say by chance at this point. So I was in this native um, engineering meetup and uh, we, I was looking in the chat and she literally was like, oh, I'm looking for any programmers because it was all native engineers. And uh, we're just talking and she had a chat of them. She was like, you know, I'm looking for anybody that's from Hopi who's an engineer. I'm trying to start a cohort for coding. And I was like, what? And so... So I've been mentoring, I, I go and I speak when they have each cohort, I go and I speak and I show them a couple of things and this and that. And within that space, because you have the interest, I emphasize how, you know, each one of them is capable of being any type of engineer, specifically with the women, um, because we're bound by different traditions, Navajo traditions, Hopi traditions as, as um, in, in the female roles um, that, you know, it may feel like you're kind of stepping out of those traditions, but this, the talking about the fair child is kind of like bringing that back into that and saying, no, it's, you're not stepping out of that tradition. You're using in a different sense. Here is how, because these women that uh, were, were at the semiconductor plant were actually weaving these things, these designs that they saw 
into their traditional rugs and we're able to figure all of those things out. And I'm almost willing to bet that as the designs were going through with the semiconductors, they were also, you know, um, kind of integrating their rug designs into the semiconductor. So it's a back and forth. And, you know, and so that's always been the way that I've opened it up because uh, Navajo and Hopi, uh, the female male traditions are very, very strong. And, and so, you know, it's, it's really, um, to have that there's always sometimes if if you look at it as oh engineering as a mainstream thing as a as a um I, you know like non-traditional approach a lot of times these are the type of stories where first with tradition and then it looks at non-tradition there's like a gap and so talking about the fair trial project the the plant and the semiconductors it's able to merge those two together not very far that it's like oh, it's not very far apart and you aren't, you aren't stepping out of tradition. You're actually like utilizing it and there's a lot of proof in it. So it, it's, uh, I, I think that's just how I would approach it. And um, learning about this and working on this has really like uh, added a lot of uh, meat and it just really added a lot of meat to like when I do talk to these cohorts nowadays. <laughs> yeah, if we can kind of maybe pause for a second to give a little bit of context to the role of the semiconductor in our lives. It is the item, the invention that shapes our current reality. Here we are recording via Zoom. That's only possible because of the semiconductor. And I think that's what I I feel uh, maybe it requires us to pause for a second to really give credit to how big this is. This is humongous. Um, And Um, The semiconductor um, is fairly recent in the sense that I think it's like 1956 or so. It's not till 1965 that this plant is put together to really kind of like mass produce it and bring it into the type of application that we recognize today. Uh, Like this, the story, it matches up with the history of computing and the history of the computer, which goes back hundreds of years and there's a really cool device that was discovered like off the coast of Greece. It's like the Antikythera device. I'm, I, I don't have the right pr- uh, pronunciation, but that's like a computing device from several thousand years ago. But uh, like the modern computing history goes back to like the 1800s and it involves a lot of women. It involves a lot of um, two-spirit, like other people like Alan Turing and um, Really, one of the big things, just kind of going back to that first question that, uh, about like women's roles in science and STEM, uh, just coming from physics, like everybody talks about Einstein, they all talk about Feynman, they talk about all these men and these male voices, and the women are left out of these discussions, even when they have these breakthrough discoveries, these breakthrough contributions. Uh, me and Benicio, like the first time that we met, we were talking about like Rosalind Franklin and the discovery of the DNA molecule and the X-ray crystallography that she was doing. And she gets overlooked for Watson and Crick who come in after her. And they're called the discoverers of DNA where it's like, oh no, she was actually the one who discovered it. Like Nobel prizes, they say they can't posthumously award anybody that prize. So they're like, it's gonna say this way. But um, for me in that kind of story, uh, I go back to Emmy Nother actually. There's a wonderful physicist by the name of Emmy Noether, and she did, mathematician, applied physicist, applied mathematician, she did all of the um, 
baseline work that sets the boundary for supersymmetry. And supersymmetry is at the heart of general relativity, of special relativity, everything that Einstein and Minkowski and these other physicists, theoretical physicists use to build up their theories and win their awards. Supersymmetry is so powerful that it's also at the root and at the heart of quantum mechanics and at like this uh, entire world of like the Higgs boson and looking at where the origins of the universe come from and just what exists at the smallest, smallest scale. So she she's really the, the one who breaks out all of this theoretical physics and everything that happens in this modern world. So uh, that's just kind of answering it there. Like, uh, again, as a physicist, when we talk about semiconductors, it's like we're going to talk about the PN junction. We're going to talk about like electron transport, um, just how these like novel materials work. And I'm several years removed from from that um, intensive training. But uh, yeah, the semiconductor, it's an incredible piece of technology that allows us to open up a whole new world into a logic gate um, kind of technology. These logic gates existed before the semiconductor when like at Los Alamos or like on the Manhattan Project, they were using computers that were the size of buildings and big rooms. And their transistors were essentially uh, light bulbs. They were using like light bulbs and this older technology developed in the later 1800s to do all their compute, computing computation uh, to like turn on and off these signals. But the semiconductor allows us to do that at a much smaller scale so once that, that innovation was brought about 1956 when the Nobel Prize is awarded, they're starting to able to make these computers that are no longer building size, they're like the size of a room. And then Moore's law kicks in and you just start developing smaller and smaller computational devices. And you get more and more transistors spaced closer together. And um, yeah, now like Intel, uh, AMD, they're working at the nanoscale. So they've packed in like thousands and thousands of transistors based on the, the semiconductor principle into the space of like a millimeter, you know, and even smaller. So uh, I do want to brush up more on the computational history and that background physics on it, but um, Benicia, you, you work more with programming on the day-to-day, -day, so uh, it, it kind of has even more relevance. The role of semiconductor was so huge. Like, um, I mean, just in terms of from that time period when they were working on the semiconductors and they realized that they could utilize these and uh, not only for defense, defensive systems, I worked with defensive systems and um, the role that that has to play in it. I mean, I'd like on a larger scale in, def in defensive systems and air, air defense systems and ground defense systems, I mean, originally like that's what they were looking for was something to be able to to uh bring those things to life and when they realized oh you know we could make these semiconductors that really put everything together um to the point that now they were like okay we can mass produce these there's a lot of proof that had to be done like how are we gonna because literally they were just like they would make one turn that out see how that one worked and and uh they needed it, it's not like you could just hire anybody off the street, you know, you uh, or anybody say, hey, here's some plans. They literally needed people uh, to to do detailed work. And as they were, they tried different places like they were they did different places. And then, you know, Navajo Nation was like, hey, we got this space here um, and we have these people. And they went out there and they looked and they're like, oh, and, you know, uh, many people went through and toured and they saw these rugs and oh, you know, like a light bulb came on, uh, 
And so they, that was what they were looking for is people that could do detailed work um, and do, and do it very well. And, you know, with once, you know, once the fair trial went, you know, once it kind of came to a head, you know, when they pushed uh, the plant over to like, I think it was Korea, because they were just like, we need to find similar detailed workers when they pushed it over there. I mean, it just, it just blew up because then now you have personal, I mean, literally being able to mass produce these semiconductors was able to bring us personal home computers, like, <laughs> you know, um, much more. And it, it just went from there, like from the, from the small, I mean, they were shipping them out and you could build your own computer in your garage back in the day. And then before you know it, like that's pretty much catapulted all of these, um, you know, a product evangelist like Steve Jobs and stuff, <laughs> you know, um, but it, 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 literally it just started from the, those types of designs into what we have today to what we have the laptops, we have the iPhones. I mean, we still use that model and we still use that model of production. I mean, it always, uh, it, it's just amazing to look at it from that small point from, you know, that small location in Arizona, you know, and then when it came to a head and just became, you know, they used that model of mass production and they used the, that model of design uh, to like Korea and then coming back to the United States and then it just widespread. <laughs> One of the really interesting things too, like when me and Venetia started studying it, Venetia came back and she mentioned that HP actually opened up like a factory on Hopi land as well. So shortly after um, Fairchild was going, there were actually these other high-tech companies that were coming to the Hopi and Navajo Nation area too, uh, seeking those, those skilled workers and um, really needing that, that high technology workforce right there in these indigenous communities. They used to have, yeah, they used to have a plant off of, um, I don't know if it was a plant, it was electronics plant, not far behind the semiconductor production, not far behind it, just off the 40, there was a building there and then that's how they started doing electronics and that was actually producing some of the electronic um, cards and other types of electronic things that they were just producing them there for a while until people, you know, until it became much larger, <laughs> but yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, for a while it was actually sold off to, I, you know, my uncle was telling me, he's like, I think it sold off to this person. And it just kind of went in the background of things. Um, but you know, there is a story to unpack there. <laughs> if we can think about how, for example, the stories that we carry about the semiconductor Silicon Valley, the computer itself is something that I think is at the heart of what hopefully we'll be able to kind of expand throughout these conversations. But one of the things that helps is to think about this kind of um, narrative that is built so that in 1956, there's a Nobel Prize for the PNN, I believe, uh, semiconductor. At that point, there is no Silicon Valley. I, I don't think there is a vision of how transformative that's going to be. However, it's already transformative, as both of you have indicated, because of the, of the scale of the logic of computing. That's how I'm understanding this story, that it's big because of breakthrough invention. But then we see like 10 years later, uh, Venetia and Nick, you're referencing this Fairchild Corporation. 
at that point, it's an actual corporation that's going to try and figure out how to kind of be a leader in, I guess, like I think of like manufacturing innovation of an industry that is up and up and being brought forward into an existence I'm thinking about because I've initially brought in the idea of the military and and there was already a place for this to be put into practice, the military industrial complex. It wasn't called that yet, or might've, I think it was 1950s was the first time. Um, I think Eisenhower throws out that term, the military industrial complex. But I'm thinking about this idea that like, yeah, but for those of us that are playing video games, uh, we, we were not seeing that, that benefit yet. However, I want to bring back this process of like seeing this development of like from the 50s to the 60s, this um, industry is growing. And when you said you brought forward already this idea that like this factory is going to be put forward somewhere, uh, I'd like to pause for a minute and to acknowledge that it's going to be put in, in a Navajo reservation. It's gonna be built in a Navajo reservation. And just to give context, maybe if it helps, you know, we, we hear these big manufacturers, you know, like Tesla say, I'm going to Texas, you know, like that. And, and it's a big deal. It's like all over the headlines and, and then we're going, okay, but this is in 1965. However, I think it was a big deal even then. Uh, from what I understand, this process was a coordinated effort between the corporation, the Fairchild Corporation, I believe it's the Navajo community itself, but also the U.S. Department. But it's also, uh, it's not just economic, it's also racialized. If I understand correctly, um, there's this conversation of like, I, I think I read it somewhere, like quote unquote, modernizing the Navajo community. You know, this perception that we're going to give this employment and bring them into, you know, the type of employment that's available in the cities. However, I, I think I want to pause there because I, I want to kind of highlight something that I think may be significant in the storytelling process that we kind of go through. And that's that like um, our individual lives, sometimes we're aware of it, most of the time we're not, but we're navigating big issues. You know, like we started this conversation earlier about the story we tell about ourselves and we might say, oh, I didn't grow up in a household with engineers but we never asked ourselves like, well, why didn't I? You know, why is it that my whole neighborhood doesn't have any, any, any engineers in my whole neighborhood? And that's what I mean about the big story. Oh, you don't understand that there was a, a active process to uh, produce systems of inequality so that you wouldn't have engineers in your neighborhood. And here I am a 10 year old thinking, oh, I didn't know that. You know, so I wanna talk about that if we can. Can we pause for a second and talk about how do you respond to the history of colonialism even and, and native communities, the nation building process and how this fits in? I mean, is, is, does that have a conversation for you? Definitely like when that conversation of like, we're gonna modernize the Navajo Nation, we're gonna modernize these communities. It's like following that narrative of boarding schools, it's following that narrative of manifest destiny and killing the Indians, saving the man and everything. Um, so there is that aspect to it. And then also just like the greater uh, happenings of like why the Navajo Nation was chosen. Like there's all these different economic things going on, the coordinated effort. But um, you also have to consider the uranium, like the, the uranium mining and uh, 
uh, everything that went on with like the precious minerals that are being taken from these lands too, um, starting like in the 50s, especially for the Navajo Nation. And it's still a really, really terrible thing going on right now with cleanup efforts ongoing. But that, that's what makes me think like, oh, this is the area that we can work with. There's already like a workforce that's getting trained up potentially, um, like with the men and with the women. Uh, I learned recently, like there's Fairchilds, there's a, a Hewlett-Packard that, that's in that region. But I also learned about General Atomics and like General Electro General Electric. They were out in like Navajo Nation area too um, to do all the extractive efforts and like all these other shell corporations that you can't find anymore, like the main corporation and everything too. You just pack up and leave, <laughs> disband legally and whatnot. But um, yeah, there's there's all that that's ongoing that ties into this narrative from like the uranium to the boarding school system to just like everything else with manifest destiny and um, yeah, that that's how it kind of starts out. But um, like in that development process, like the plant opening up in 1965 and then the integrated circuit coming about in 1970 or uh, four to six years later, um, part of that narrative is like, oh, were those scientists and engineers, were they inspired by like the art in the area? Were they inspired like, oh, I've been seeing these weavings and these rugs and I'm going to tie that into like these designs and into my calculations or the story that we're kind of pursuing here. Um, and we'll, we'll go back to pausing soon, but the story that we're pursuing as well is that these women, like these, these native women who were in the factory, who were the main workforce in the factory, they were speaking with these engineers and with these physicists and they were letting them know about like these very fine processes that they've worked with and that they were familiar with and that could be incorporated into, into the design of the integrated circuit. Because like if, if you just have the semiconductor, like you have a logic gate, but you really need a circuit that's tying together these different computer components, like from the memory to um, computation, like the CPU to the RAM and everything. So um, yeah, the part of this is just like finding out where that active voice comes in. Is it that passive area where these scientists are just like, oh, this is really beautiful and amazing and it's inspiring me or is it through that dialogue and active contribution that's taking place and occurring? But um, yeah, yeah, just that role of colonization, it's its everywhere, but uh, it even goes out into where computing is gonna go into the future, you know? Like if we follow the narrative that like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos wants us to do, it's just, oh, we're gonna colonize a new planet, we're gonna get to this new area and we're just gonna like continue on this pathway, this road of like capitalism and um, this kind of like innovation that's rooted in a lot of nihilism and if not like Abrahamic <laughs> philosophies. Whereas like the reality when we stop um, believing just in all these lies and when we start to let all the truth come in where um, these origins really are with these native women and also the, the scientists and physicists who were associated with Fairchilds, they were very brilliant as well. Um, they weren't the only company in the world trying to get these semiconductors and these processes to work. They're doing it in Germany, they're doing it in the UK, they're doing it in these other parts of the world. And um, just the, there, there's one part that I'd love to get to in the future where we talk about like Robert Noyce and these other physicists, the choice to use sand, that's that's very holy as well. Like to, to paint with sand, it's, it's something that um, Hippothlee and other medicine people work with. So um, they made that choice. Whereas like a German company or somebody in Texas, they're like, oh, we're gonna use gallium arsenide. But that, we somewhat use that today, but we're still on that silicon um, basis for the technology. So 
that future of where computer science and engineering takes us, it includes like these, these women and it includes these like holy ways as well. It's not just this um, future that people want of like, oh, there's robots and we're on Mars now. It's like understanding that this universe and cosmos is tied together in a much more um, holistic sense. And we can start to break down that barrier of what a computer is, where like we look at the computer, like uh, other industrial processes is really bad and like destructive for the world. And they are in the ways that they're being handled right now. But at the same time, like that silicon, it's made out of sand that comes from the beach, like the entire computer that we're looking at right now. It's a product of the earth, just the same as um, like a strawberry growing out in the field or corn or like a mountain in the distance, you know, like it's, it's that same, it's made of those same components. So if we're able to recognize and appreciate that and start using it in that way, we have a future that's really wild when you combine like CRISPR and all these other things that are ongoing. So yeah, uh, I might've gone on tangents there too, but <laughs> that's kind of my viewpoint on it. I mean, I kind of would, I, I'd like to believe that at some point, you know, some of these engineers and, and, um, you know, they, they saw a sand painting and it was explained to them, you know, how the lines and everything were connected and they put those things together and, you know, the knowledge that they already had and shared with these knowledge of what they were doing out there and put it together and came up with that idea to, you know, use silicone and, um, you know, I think you know, focusing plants, I think it's just been a historic thing, you know, focusing plants and mining and all these things, because, you know, when they first, uh, you know, when the BIA, they had to go to the BIA and uh, say, hey, and submit a proposal and make a bid and say, this is what we're going to do. And of course, you know, the BIA is like, well, that's perfect because it takes, you know, it lightens our checkbook because, you know, basically they offer to help with the infrastructure. And they needed money for the infrastructure, new water lines, new this and that. And at the same time, you had mining going on at the same time. So it was it was a quick opportunity. I mean, I think historically, historically, every bid in terms of plants, mining, uh, water, uh, minerals, anything that's protected because it's on the reservation uh, has the approach has always been we will improve your infrastructure <laughs> since the dawn of time since you know since the beginning it, it's been like oh well you need more water pipes so you know you need cleaner water you need you know these types of things you know like and, and started with the uranium and the coal mining and it's like but those are the things that and so you know those are the things that like sorry we damaged your water uh, but we'll help you improve your infrastructure. So if you let us have this plan, um, you know, and and in the same sense, uh, right now, I mean, continuously in recent because, you know, Navajo Nation and Hopi rest on some of the most purest aquifers. And uh, and it, it, it's the same thing that it's been with uranium. Uh, what is it? Uh, coal is quantifying. You know, it's it's the idea of quantifying something. We quantify water so that they can say, okay, well, you only need this much water, not looking into the future. And that's what they did with coal mining. They quantified the minerals and coal based on the population and said, oh, okay, you only need $1 million. 50 years down the road, Navajo Nation population, Hopi population, our needs for those natural resources to help our infrastructure. Um 
but we're just we're just being held to what we knew at that time. And the same thing with water, and we see these same types of things. It's just this continuous role of quantifying our resources, quantifying our people. Um, and I think that's what happened with same thing with engineering is like not, you know, we, for me, the reason why engineering wasn't a recognized thing out in Hopi or why like at 10 years old, you know, living or growing up part of the time on the reservation in Hopi where we didn't have water, we didn't have electricity, you know, it was a farming tradition, sticking to the traditions of farming and, and all that type of stuff. And, um, was because that was just, we were sticking to that tradition, very staunch traditionalists. So you, in order to you know, to get away from those staunch traditions, because if you're farming, you know where to get food, you know where to get water, you know how you have your home and stuff like that. How are you going to lure us away from our traditions? How are you going to lure us away from reservations? How are you going to lure us from natives going back to like, you know, kill the Indian, save the man? How do you get us to break from that? And it's, I, I was reading a long, long time ago, there was an article about wasn't an article with some of the release documents, they were constantly researching, the United States government was constantly researching how to debase native tribes. They just couldn't do it. They, I mean, to this day, they still cannot. <laughs> they tried sending them away. They tried to do the have and have nots. And they, you know, they try to like the, um, you know, foster out kids to like non-native families. They tried to the education, you know, with the boarding schools, they tried all these different things. Uh, and there, it literally, you can look it up where there was just a list of these things to try to debase. They just could not figure out how to debase native tribes that whatever that foundation was, they just could not figure it out. So then the newest thing was, okay, we can't send them away to school because they just go home, you know? So they were like, boom, what we can do is probably come from the inside <laughs> and create that haves and haves nots. Um, and it's just been a continuous thing, you know, because there's only they were only hiring at that time. And with any plants, they were only hiring a certain amount of people in certain areas. And those certain areas were industrialized. And the, in those certain specific places like Farmington, Ship Rock, Window Rock, all these other areas were modernized and they're for infrastructure. So it was drawing Navajos, Hopis into these city-like towns and not so much in those areas where all those resources. And then eventually I, I'm willing to guess, how, you know, and that's the tangent is I'm willing to bet they're just like, that's abandoned. They don't even use that no more. So, you know, we'll just cut it down, but it didn't work that way. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I think going back to the engineering thing is like, um, it, it's another way of quantifying, like in order to be an engineer, you have to have X, Y, and Z. It's quantifying the idea of engineering. And so when Nick and I were talking about these different things that typically if we were to study it, we'd be like, that's an engineering concept. These, how we build houses, how we break rocks up, how we make bread, food, you know, irrigation, all these different things. Uh, you know, back in the day, I wouldn't have thought of them as engineering concepts. But when we come, I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, and that's where my my brain kind of broke open where I was just like, you know, um, you know, engineering has always existed within Native culture and, you know, just by nature. And I think part of that inspired, I honestly think that part of that inspired a lot of the semiconductor. 
how do we kind of share a story that is so complicated that it's hard to have a one line or not even one line, like a, like a one, two, three, four, five article. Because as, as I hear this conversation, I've, I've been going through these different perspectives. One was like how amazing that these women were at the, at the front line of this industry you know, putting together these circuitries, you know, soldering. Um, and then I go, yeah, but why did it end up there? And then we talk about like, well, uh, because of a lot of history of exploitation, that's why. And it doesn't take away anything from the women. I hope it doesn't sound that way because I think um, that's not what I'm trying to offer, but I'm saying that the history of looking at indigenous communities as a place that you can go and uh, at minimum, uh, the body is going to be easier to exploit or the land is going to be easier to exploit or the water. Both of you identified uh, to kind of um, repeat Anisha's uh, assessment of quantifying things. It's only because of market capitalism that this is possible, because if you're out of market capitalism, market capitalism you're not putting a value on things. I mean, in the same way, you're not putting dollars and cents and calculating percentages uh, of value. But here we are and here we were in 1965. And that's part of the history that complicates this narrative, because I was I'd like to see if we, if we can kind of highlight uh, the importance of recognizing um, these women in this factory um, in something that uh, we've been kind of touching here and there. And um, I'd like to pause so that at least the audience kind of knows exactly what we're signaling. And that has to do that the, the women were selected, and correct me if I'm wrong, because they were already master weavers, correct? Like they had a skill set that the company believed they could benefit from. And in that skill set, it's compatible, compatible with the architecture design of the semiconductor. That's how I'm understanding the relationship between the workers and the and what they're gonna do there. So it's not it's not just simply that they're gonna get a worker, a woman worker. It's that they believe that the worker that they're going to hire has a skill set that is already compatible to the type of jobs that they are going to do there. And one of one of the things that both of you have been signaling is this relationship between the design of the weaving, the Navajo uh, rugs, and the way that eventually the circuit board looks like, or the little chip looks like. And I think that's something that I'd like to highlight. And I know we're doing this over, yeah, over, over a podcast, which doesn't have a visual component, but I think that's probably the, the most significant part for me as someone that's learning about this material is to be able to see an early image of this like circuit design with uh, angles, the right angles that if you didn't know, you'd be like, wow, that's a beautiful piece of art. And then you put a lot, uh, a rug, Navajo rug next to it. And you go, wow, are they copying <laughs> this design that is that predates the 1965 factory. And that's what Vanisha and Nick, both of you have been highlighting. And I just want to repeat it only because as an audience member that doesn't know this conversation, it might have gotten overlooked. And I want to pause to say, 
I think this is the core or a core subject in the conversation. What is the relationship between the eventual design and the workers that were hired to put together, you know, the circuit? Uh, really quick, like in some of the articles uh, that you can read and like on the Wikipedia page, uh, like the Fairchild company people, they're like, oh, we hired the women because they're really skilled with their hands and they have small hands that can help work. And then like there's a little comment on those articles where it says like, oh, they could actually pay them less than they could like other men and like other people too, you know, so that's part of the reason and then they could pay Native Americans less too. So. That's that factors into it a little bit. Yeah, I know that when, you know, when every when, you know, when when we transition into the aim portion, they had a hard time trying to make the sale because they were doing good. Like it was like it was a windfall for them to be able to have the plan out there. And then aim comes along and now they had to reconsider how they were going to make this happen with the same output. And so they couldn't. So that's what kind of forced them overseas. Um, and a lot of people followed suit. But I just want to say, like, although, like, you know, there is that underlying connotation uh, for, like, on natives and, and why these plants continuously come out there, why these mining companies continually come out there, I think the semiconductor a lot like the, you know, the, the fry bread, in a sense, um, semiconductor it was like the fry bread you know the fry bread came from a negative portion a a negative situation but um you know and but you know native women somehow made it their own and i think in this situation in the same thing and not as negative as far as you know the semiconductor they made it their own and and uh fortunate for us made it a positive and impactful story that needs to be told because they've managed to make it their own somewhere in there. you know, this, this native woman was like, you should do this. <laughs> That's what I like to think is they were, they, they, cause you know, they're not like, Oh yes, you will take direction. I never known a native woman to just take direction. There's a lot of feedback. So <laughs> I think there was a lot of feedback on how this yeah. conductor was <laughs> constructed. So <laughs> I definitely agree there. It's just setting us up for that conversation of the AIM takeover. I was talking with um, my my aunt, um, my uncle's wife. She was actually there when AIM took over. Um, her sister was working in the Fairchild Semiconductor plant, but fortunately she's passed away since then. But uh, my aunt, she was there. She was like 14 or 15. And like, that was the day they took it over. And she was like, yeah, there was like moving and people were getting out of the building and whatnot. But I, I've just been so focused on like the technology and like the physics aspect of things that I, I haven't gone too much into the AIM takeover. And that's like the biggest part of this is that the Native community, AIM, American Indian movement, they were like, yeah, this is exploiting us. This, this is exploiting our people. Like, we're not seeing anything. We're not seeing any, any gain back from this in the level that it's actually impacting the world. And they took it over and yeah, the U.S. was forced to, um, move their processes overseas and just in that history of the computation this is something that I, I really like is that the U.S. actually falls behind and like the rest of the world kind of falls behind in the computation and computing industry um, who really picks it up is the Japanese the Japanese like they they actually get into the computing industry 
um, like all this other economic post-war things are going on, but um, all these billion uh, billion dollar companies from Fairchild to like um, IBM and like these other German and uh, European companies, they're throwing billions and billions of dollars at like the processing and uh, semiconducting industry after it aims, closes down Fairchilds. But it's actually these Japanese students and researchers and professors who are like super poor. They have like, they're doing like these saw blade things and wearing like kitchen gloves and like these do-it-yourself uh, do like protective things. They're like cutting these sapphire components and other things together. They're the ones who actually leapfrog the industry like by decades um, working with like just really good science, you know, like in the end, it's, that's I think what gets us super excited is that it's really great science, really great design that's at the heart of all these computer technologies and industries. And after Japan's able to like get us to that next level, um, then like things start to become really crazy in the 90s. And yeah, we're, we end up here. And for the longest time, I was like, oh, Intel is the best and like AMD is the best. Now it's, <laughs> it's, it's a wild ride of the computer history. But yeah, AIM plays such a crucial role in all this as well. And um, that understanding within the communities that, yeah, this is in the end very extractive towards us and what that response ended up being. I was thinking about how we start this conversation, thinking about how to tell a story, you know, about something that is important and overlooked, you know, um, non-recognized. And as we've been, you know, sharing this conversation briefly, you know, uh, right now, I was thinking about how um, there's all these layers and these layers that don't really always connect nicely. And what I meant, for example, like here I am trying to think about how to highlight the importance of these Native women in, in, in an industry that most of us just assume um, Native people were never even near it they're omitted from this process and and in that appreciation i start thinking about like but it was more complicated because like why was it on native land what is the history of even calling like i we didn't even talk about it because i think people would be like confused by why we would go there but the fact that it's on a reservation we have to pause and ask like why are people on a reservation in the first place and that kind of takes us back to like 500 years of history but i think if we're going to continue this conversation i think it's it it almost demands that we understand that that's how we have to talk to make sense of it because if we don't we'll end up missing parts of the story I know for me, again, just going back to the physics and science of it and like where we're located in Riverside County, um, it'd be good to talk, I think, a little bit about like the boarding school system and like Sherman Indian High School, how that kind of Sherman Indian boarding school, how, how that plays into it. But um, what really excites me is that at UC Riverside, there's actually the grandchild of one of these um, Nobel Prize winners for the semiconductor. His name is uh, I forget the professor's name, but Bardeen, and he actually won a Nobel Prize too. So that's pretty cool for their family. It's like, oh, I'm going to do what grandpa did, <laughs> get a Nobel Prize. It's like, what? But, um, pretty amazing. So in the future, uh, it doesn't have to be the next episode, but it'd be great to actually include him into the conversation because it's his family as well as all of our families too that build up this narrative of the 21st century that we're living in with this technology. So. That's one area that I'd like to get into in the future. Um, I think really giving, you know, just kind of a brief 
of, um, you know, just the locations and how, how the two main locations are significant, you know, um, I think the, the general, you know, is building that history in terms of where, where that plant was, and then other following plants, like the one that was off the I-40, um, and, and just how continuously that specific area seems, seems to constantly be targeted. <laughs> um, you know, me, myself, I would think maybe because, you know, I, Arizona is like, I think it's the most, um, by capita, I think it is, it has the most reservations, but that area specifically is like um, Hopi, Navajo, and then just like, there's like a couple of miles in between it, and then you cross over and Zuni and all these different ones, but it's a very condensed, like a lot of reservations. It's a very condensed area, um, and, and, it, and those areas are constantly being targeted for resources, um, and just highlighting like what this, you know, the, the resources that are there and the continuous like uh, focus uh, from industries, like, you know, like the mining um, nowadays, it's the water um, as we're, as we're, cause you know, and the significance of that area and how much that area actually provides to places like California, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, because that area provides a lot of electricity up until recently <laughs> and uh, now everybody's feeling it but they took that that uh plant out and that's why we all feel these energy this energy crush um yeah. the, the yes the and, and yeah and so that type of stuff how important it is but it historically that area has been constantly in focus and to this day still continues has continued to provide for at least the West Coast. I mean, it's it's a very significant area, uh, um, resource-wise. And you know, as we get shorter and shorter of water, we're kind of, you know, now in Hopi, we're kind of like, don't, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, like uh, let's just close the gates a little. I don't know, you know, um, because recently there was a bill that was being passed through Arizona. Um, there there was a, a court fight um, that was actually where they were trying to force. Navo and Hopi to quantify water and saying, okay, uh, Nick, household of three, how much water do you need for your household of three? Tell me. And, and then, and then holding him to that for the next 20 years, whether his family multiplies or not, they're like, no, nah, you said you only needed this much. <laughs> so we're only giving you that much. The rest you can buy. <laughs> and that's exactly what they're doing to us right now. Um, and there's a court fight for that. And to be like, well, because they're trying to say you're not using it all. So, you know, and so they're trying to get us and and at the same time being like, look, we'll pay you this much. And and that's pretty much how the mining went through this the history, the 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 good and bad history of these industries. Um, it's, it's very, very significant. Yeah, yeah, I know those natural resources. And um, uh, I, I also just wanted to mention really quick that maybe a discussion on like the indigenous STEM um, as well, because we're talking about something that's really big in terms of like, this is high technology. Everybody is interested in traditional ecological knowledge and all these different systems and processes, science, mathematics that existed thousands of years ago, centuries ago, but we're talking about something like last 60 years. And like, it's fun to talk about the future too, but um, 
yeah, there's just so much overlooking of the indigenous communities in general in uh, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, where it's like, okay, uh, me and Venetia, <laughs> Danielle, we need to talk about how mathematics has been here for millennia, how like, some of the most intricate environmental science systems, the most intricate like linear algebra, astronomy systems, like, they've been here for a long time. So I, I think mentioning that too would be really great. But yeah, those natural resources, we, we really have to discuss that too. Yeah. And a lot of that emphasis, you know, nowadays, like I know that previously a long time ago, like my grandfather, my uncles, you know, different people in the community, um, because the because of this this threat um, to resources and this type of stuff, and then they saw like you know these scientists and all these people sampling, they actually like realized wait we need they they actually went and got um, engineering degrees and pursue these engineering education because they realized that they needed to get in that same level. So a lot of these historic like you know we're like wow that guy's like. Who would have thought he went to engineering but he saw the threat and was like in order for me to be able to defend us i need to also be educated in engineering so a lot of these engineers in our area where it became science engineers biological environmental scientists um because they needed to get that knowledge to start you know coming back and defending these resources um there's there's a there's a hopi woman she uh, got her doctorate in environmental science because specifically hers, and, and she actually helped with this that uh, trial. Um, she actually helped with that trial because she had a background in, in water environmental science. Um, and she became, and so those are, the, they were, we're actually kind of, I don't, I would say forced, but it, that's our way of defending those resources and it's it's very significant when you look back like even the 70s and 80s i was like wow we had engineers that people didn't but it was for a reason it was the purpose of defense and survival and i think that's just amazing it just blows my mind because before we would just say hey water's not you know water's not going to always be there we got to conserve it and they're just like okay farmer whatever you know you, you don't have you know the letters behind you don't have the accolades and so they were like okay fine we'll go get them <laughs> Well, on that note, I want to thank both of you for sharing your time and the conversation. Um, so thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yes, thank you. You have just finished hearing a conversation with Anisha Hinani and Nicholas Rajan. Our subject addressed the Fairchild Semiconductor Manufacturing Plant on the Diné reservation between 1965 and 1975. Vanisha and Nicholas share the direction in trying to unpack the relationship between the development of the semiconductor design and the Diné and Hopi people's own geometric design visible in the artwork, especially in the weaving of rugs. The history of the Diné and Hopi women working in the semiconductor manufacturing plant is one that has great relevance to our present state, but I for one was unfamiliar. I hope we get an opportunity to follow up and explore and expand on this subject. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. You've been listening to Daniel here on the D-Report. Please feel free to check out our archive page at dreport.org and join us again for future episodes. Stay safe, stay strong. <laughs>